Well, let's turn our Bibles to the passage we looked at or read together earlier in Romans chapter 15. Uh, One of the uh, things we often forget when we're reading the New Testament letters, like the book of Romans is perhaps the largest letter, is that these apostles were uh, selected by Jesus. Uh, The major apostles, the twelve, were selected to be with him and uh, to be taught by him directly. And then the apostle Paul, who describes himself as an apostle born out of due time, has a personal encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. If we read 2 Corinthians, he also had what we might describe as a vision that, that parallels the vision that the, the, or the, the experience, rather, that the disciples had on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's able to see the glory of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus, and perhaps even the beatific vision. He, he has these, he has a vision that he cannot tell us what it was. He says what he saw is not translatable, and anyway, he's not allowed to say what he saw. One of the things we recognize as we read the Apostle Paul is that we are meant to pay attention not only to what he teaches by way of dogma, that is, the doctrines that he gives, but we're to pay attention to his life. In fact, often he says that, that you're to pay attention not just to what I say, but to what I do, the kind of life that I live. And if you've read the Bible, and perhaps particularly if you've read the Bible as a Christian worker or a Christian preacher, and you, you find this particular preacher saying to his people, pay attention not just to what I say, but to how I live, I think at that point there usually is an immense amount of conviction in our hearts. We're convicted by the fact that we can't say that. We can't say that. It's perhaps a, a sorry thing to be able to say. Robert Murray McShane said that a godly minister is an awful weapon in Christ's hands. And yet the reality is that we stand before you as those who, like you, and like all of us as believers, have to daily fight sin so that we might pursue holiness. But the apostles were given a special anointing of the Spirit to be the teachers of the church, both by word and by action. Even when they get it wrong, we pay attention to their action as to how they put it right. So when Paul has a clash with Peter, we pay attention to the way in which that clash was resolved. In that case, Paul stood up to Peter who was one of the pillars of the church, told him. I told him plainly he was wrong. And uh, Paul was right. So, when we come to this passage this evening, we're listening to the arrangements of a man 2,000 years ago uh, in interaction with his friends, well, people in Rome who are fellow Christians that he hasn't met. And he's talking about bringing money to the, the Christians back in Jerusalem, but he's talking about wanting to go to Spain 
and wanting to come and meet these people in Rome who he's written this long, long letter to that we've been looking at. Uh, And we could have spent longer, by the way, in the letter. Someone was reminding me that some years ago, many years ago, when the husband was going, doing his medical work here in, in Philadelphia, as some of you are, uh, they timed their, their period at 10th in these terms. Uh, we were at 10th the year that Dr. Boyce preached through Romans 11. The year. So those of you who think you've had a tough time with Revelation, just need to remind yourselves that I think it took 10 years for him to preach through Romans because he did a thorough job of it, and you should read the commentary. Anyway, uh, we've come to the book of Romans. We've looked at it from several aspects as we've been uh, expounding it as a team over the period we've been handling it. And there's no doubt that the overarching theme of the letter to the Romans is the good news, the gospel itself. We were introduced to it right at the very beginning, in the very first line, as the gospel of God. That gospel that was promised in the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, that gospel that focused on the Son of God, who in his earthly nature was descended from David, therefore he's a Jew and he is the Messiah, who by his resurrection is attested by the Holy Spirit to be who he truly is, Jesus Christ, that is Jesus the Messiah, according to the flesh, and our Lord, according to his divine nature. He, by his work in the good news, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Jesus Christ brings salvation to everyone or anyone who believes. So wherever they are, whomever they are, So there's so much this evening I can say to you that whoever you are and wherever you are, this gospel is good news for you. It is good news of salvation. It is good news of eternal life. It is good news of the reconciliation with God. It is good news that you need to hear and believe if you're going to benefit from it. Now, this letter is not only focused on the gospel. This letter is also simply a piece of correspondence. Paul, the writer, is introducing himself, if you look at chapter 1, introducing himself to his readers. Uh, uh, As we listen to him, we we learn something of his character. Chapter 1, he says to them, uh, I long to see you. I I long that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. I I long for that, not so only so that I can be a blessing to you, but but that we might be mutually encouraged, that it might go both ways. I might encourage you, you might encourage me in each other's faith. He admits them in chapter 1 that he planned many times to come to them, but had been prevented. The apostle lays it on thick in chapter 1, These were Romans. These people lived in the capital of the world empire. Romans thought a lot of themselves. Romans believed that Romans 
ruled the world. And of course they did. At one level they did rule the world. And I suppose the Romans weren't used to somebody saying, I was going to come and then that's something better to do. <laughs> I don't think many people said that to Rome in those days. Well, here in chapter 15, he explains why he had not gotten there. He'd been hindered. He'd been hindered. Elements or events in his life had arisen that had prevented him. So he's, he's a real person. The events in his life stopped him doing something he wanted to do, planned to do. And the people he's writing to, these Romans themselves, are not a theoret theoretical construct. I mean, the way Christians talk about the book of Romans, or Romans usually, just Romans, we're reading Romans, it's as if, you know, it's a kind of, uh, it's a theological tome or, or, or something. These Romans are not a theoretical construct. These are real Christian people whom the apostle longs to meet and greet. Well, in the passage we read, uh, we saw the apostle setting out his strategic objectives in verses 23-24. He wants to go to Spain. That's his target. He wants to go to Spain, not for the sun, as Brits do in, in the winter and even in the summer to get some heat because they don't have it there. Uh, he wants to go to Spain to preach the gospel. He wants to reach the unreached parts. He wants to take the gospel right as far west as people in his day thought the world went. And he hoped that he'd get there, first of all, by going to Rome and meeting them on his way. And he now explains in verse 25 his present goal. I'm on my way to Jerusalem in service of the Lord's people there. In fact, what he says is, I'm going there to minister to the saints. The word is the word diakonos. He, he, he is going there as a, to do a work of deking, which is serving. He wants to serve the saints. This is almost a technical expression in the text here for financial contributions that were being made by Gentile folks for the church in Jerusalem that had been having a hard time. He'd been in Corinth. He's perhaps writing from Corinth, but in Corinth he'd been raising money there for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He hoped to go to, uh, from Corinth uh, and then to Rome before heading back to Jerusalem and then coming from Jerusalem back to Rome and from Rome to Spain. That was his plan. One of the great reformers, one of the greatest reformers, Jacques Lefebvre de Tap, believed that uh, Paul actually arrived in Spain, and he quotes Sophoronus, the patriarch of Jerusalem, who left behind written attestation of this. This guy who was a patriarch of Jerusalem writes that Italy and France and Spain were illuminated by the sojourn of the most blessed Paul. It's also said that Philotheus, the ruler of Spain, devoted himself to the Apostle Paul and became a confessor of Christ. No way of substantiating that, but that's the view of uh, one of the reformers. Now, why did he have to go via Jerusalem? He says this in verse 26, For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution 
for the poor among God's people in Jerusalem. It's interesting that the fathers and the medievals and some of the Reformed thought that there were poor saints in Jerusalem. If you read the book of Acts, the early part of Acts, because these early Christians, in the first flush of faith and excitement at becoming Christians, had voluntarily sold all their possessions. They just realized everything they had in cash, and they lived off the revenue until it ran out. They didn't have financial advisors then. It was, and, and I can understand people doing that. They, they, this Christianity was brand new. And they thought Jesus was going to come back soon, so let's do something really radical. And they did. Uh, there's also a factor that there was, there was a prophecy, we read about it in the book of Acts, of a severe famine that was to affect the area. So there they were, they were getting low in cash. There's a famine going on. And so the Christians in Jerusalem were financially poor, but also with the famine going on, they were poor in that sense also. And so we find that spontaneously, Christians in different parts of the world hearing about this voluntarily gave money to be sent to their poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Paul says the money came from Macedonia, that is northern, modern, northern, northern Greece and modern Macedonia, as well as southern Albania today, and Achaia, which is the bulk of modern Greece. And two actions were involved here. First, Paul's enthusiasm for promoting this idea of helping out their Christian Jewish brethren. I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. In other words, don't be stupid about this. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made then when I arrive. I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve of, and I will send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if at that time it seems advisable, then I will also accompany them back to Jerusalem. So he has a plan, you see. His plan is that people think about this need, that they look at what they can afford, that they give what they can, that it be gathered together in church on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, that the church there set aside people they know and trust to take the money to Jerusalem. And uh, Paul says, if I can, I'll accompany them. So what is he doing? He's planting the seed of the need. He's giving them guidance as to how to proceed. He's caution. He's using caution to ensure that these people who are giving the money trust the people who are taking it there. And he's promising, if he can, that he'll go along just to keep an eye out, that everything is done decently and in order. So Paul was a Presbyterian because that's the, that's the life verse of Presbyterians. As you know, everything should be done decently and in order. Well, we read later on then in Paul's 
one, two, three, fourth letter to Corinth that we call 2 Corinthians. There's two we don't have. In 2 Corinthians, which is written uh, later, much later, he draws attention to this action of the Corinthians. The grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. He says about them, in the midst of very great trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, and they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. And yet, despite this eager encouragement from the apostle, it was their decision. It was Macedonia and Achaia. They were pleased to make a contribution. Verse 27 in our text says, they were pleased to do it. That's important, by the way. It's important because in our day, we see very often a ungodly ways of extorting money out of God's people. What Douglas Moore, uh, Doug Moore, no, sorry, Professor Cranfield calls psychological social pressures in which we corner brothers and sisters, or we project guilt onto our brothers and sisters, or we try to embarrass our brothers and sisters. And in the event, we rob each other of our human dignity, and we rob each other of our Christian freedom to act according to our conscience and our means. Paul doesn't do any of that. He drops the seed of the idea, but he doesn't guilt them into it. In this case, the case of Macedonia and here the case of the Romans, their contribution was a spontaneous response to Paul's description of the need. Now, I've been at meetings where some dynamic speaker has got up and he has really made everybody in the room feel guilty that they are not giving as much as they can. I lived in Canada for a period in my 20s and was minister of a church there, the loveliest, loveliest church. And uh, I remember going and visiting this older man in his home. And when I he opened the door and I went in. I noticed he was in tears and he broke down crying. And I kind of had to patiently get him to unload what it was, what was wrong here. He was obviously a person who didn't have a lot of means in this world's goods. He was watching a television evangelist. I won't give the name. Um, but he'd been watching this, which was his first mistake. <laughs> but anyway, and this evangelist was very compelling. And the man's problem was this. He said, you know, I've, I've been giving away my money to help these needs. Every time the need just gets greater and greater, and I don't know what to do. I can't, I feel I, feel I should be giving, and I'm, I'm not able to give, and but the need is so terrible, it gets worse. The more I listen, it gets worse. Well, that was just pure thievery, basically. Taking advantage of people's conscience and 
abusing their conscience, running right over their conscience in order to get money out of the people. And that particular evangelist had just bought which, uh, a home which in the 1970s was in the multiple millions of dollars, as was his private jet. So, Paul here, as he talks about, as he talks about the gift, talks about their contribution. That word contribution, koinonia, means a common share in something. We sometimes translate it by the word to share, sometimes the word fellowship or partner. It's a word that carries a lot of theological weight. The Apostle John can use it when he's talking about our relationship with God, our fellowship, he says, is with the Father and with the Son. Paul, when he's giving the benediction, talks about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we share with God or in God, in Christ, by the Spirit, in a common life, a common bond, a common citizenship, a common Lord. That's what we have together. We have something that transcends space and time and history living within us that binds us together in Christ. We're not solo Christians. And so, Paul offers that to go to Rome himself, adding about 2,000 miles to his journey to Rome, uh, uh, in terms of going to Rome first and then going back to Jerusalem, then going to Rome a second time, and then going on to Spain. He's adding miles to that, that itinerary, which in those days took a long time. And he's doing so because of the divine life that inhabits every believer. Jesus had been physically with his disciples when he anticipates his going, and he tells them that he's going to be leaving them, but another helper will come alongside them. Not another of a different kind, but another of the same kind. He will be with them, and he will be in them. And he adds, when the Holy Spirit comes, he would be with them and in them, and Jesus says, I will come to you. When the Spirit comes to you, I will come to you, and my Father will come to you, and we will be with you and in you. Because you don't ever just get one member of the Trinity. The Trinity is one. Here, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that's where we are. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Spirit and the Father and the Son in us and with us. And so we as believers possess God in Christ by the Spirit. We belong, therefore, to one another as spiritual siblings. This is why the apostle, whose heart is to reach the unreached people with the gospel, is now prepared to do something you'd never imagine him to do. He is the great evangelist. But here he is prepared to take a chunk, a big chunk, out of his life to serve the church in Jerusalem in this very practical way. And he didn't see this action as a kind of rich-poor thing or a Greek-Judean thing or a strong, weak thing or a giver-taker thing. 
He has a theological reason for the move. He says, they were pleased to do it, referring to the Macedonians. And indeed, he says, they owe it. They owe it to them. That is, the poor saints in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jewish, the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material benefits. Good verse 27. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, what's his point there? Well, his point is to remind them what he's been saying right throughout this book and what he says in chapter 1, that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles. We Gentiles here are the and also. And the gospel comes to the Jew first. Do you remember what Jesus taught that Samaritan woman? He said to that Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. The Jews, through Mary, gave Jesus his, uh, his uh, ancestry, gave him the genes of King David and of Abraham. The apostle also has argued about the unique contribution of the, the Jews earlier on in Romans in chapter, in chapter uh, 9, I think. He says there that they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God over all blessed forever. This is Paul's point here. Not only are Christians not anti-Semitic and find it repugnant, the churches of the Gentiles owe all their spiritual blessings to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was keeping the faith even when it wasn't keeping the faith. It had the law. It had the Old Testament, which was the Christian scriptures. While all these letters were being written over a period of time, what did they read in church? They read the scriptures of the Old Testament in church. And this act, therefore, of generosity from Gentiles to their Jewish Christian counterparts pointed to their mutual enjoyment of a common salvation. Here was Paul, a Jew, who was taking the gospel to the world. Here were Jewish believers who had brought the gospel to Rome and gossiped the gospel to their friends. The gospel that was for the Jews first and also for the Gentiles. He's now this church in Jerusalem is a mixed congregation. There are Jewish believers as well as Gentile believers. And he's had to deal with some of the misunderstandings there earlier. And so he develops the argument. He He compares the lesser with the greater. What had these Gentiles enjoyed? They had received spiritual good things from the early Christian Jews. They got the gospel message. They got from them the early gospel material, Matthew, Mark, John, Jews who had written about the story of the gospel. 
the story of the words and works of Jesus, and the spiritual life and vitality of being grafted into the original olive tree. Remember, the the image that's used is of Judaism being the original olive tree, the original means of salvation for the world. And we who are the wild olive branches, who didn't belong to the original, are taken and we are grafted into. We were not of Israel, but now we are of Israel. We are the Israel of God by adoption. We belong to Israel by the Holy Spirit, who is the who is the sap that runs through them and us, as it were, as the gospel tree. And so, the spiritual life and vitality of being grafted into the original olive tree by the Holy Spirit, and as the Holy Spirit as the sap that coursed through our veins. So their obligation then was not moral, or legal. It was moral rather, not legal. No one was compelling them to give. Meanwhile, mere material gifts were but nothing compared with the spiritual treasure they'd found in the Hebrew Scripture and supremely in Christ. And they, like we, have received a share in the gospel with all of its benefits and blessings. And through the material gifts that Paul is collecting, they could express that sense both of indebtedness unitedness, and thanksgiving to their brothers and sisters. In other words, then, what we have described here was not a social project, nor was it even a mercy mission, both of which are good and godly in their place. But this was a strategic, theological, practical enterprise. And he goes on to comment on what Jewish Christians were coming to terms with. The Jewish Christians were coming to terms with salvation history. That the history of salvation had moved on from the days in which God's people were mainly restricted to Israel. And just as these Gentile believers had come to see their debt to the church in Jerusalem, so the church in Jerusalem needed to open its eyes up to the fact that time had moved on, the time of salvation has arrived, and that that salvation is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So there's a teaching moment coming, even through this contribution. Well, Paul ends by coming to his own plans. After I've completed this task, I've made sure that they've received the contribution. I will go to Spain and visit you. He can't go to Spain via Rome until he has carried out his ministry, which has huge implications for the mutual fellowship of Jews and Gentiles. When I've completed my task, he says, that that is the formal handing over of the collection, its final delivery into safe hands, It's a reminder that Christian work in all this part, especially anything to do with money, should be done very carefully. It should be done well. It should be seen to be done well. We must take great care over that. That's why in 50 years of being a minister, I've had nothing whatsoever ever in any church to do with the finances of the church. 
It is never a good thing for a minister of the gospel to have money in their hands. The people of God have to be sure that those who are ministering the Word of God are not in any way connected to the money that comes in for the work of the kingdom. That has to be in the hands of other people who are accountable to the church. Well, Paul says, this is going to be done the right way. I'm going to be there. We'll make sure it's done well and it's done, seen to be done well. And all of this will be an act of fellowship. Of course, it will be more than an act of fellowship. At the end of verse 27, and it's, uh, it's actually not clear in the way it's, it's put here, but at the end of 27, um, we've seen the word service used earlier here, and it's the word diakonos, from which we get deacon. The, the, the word that's actually used at the end of 27 there, which is translated, be of service to them in material things, is the Greek word that gives us the word liturgy. In other words, there is an almost worship, liturgical element to this. The word is usually often used of a priest offering a sacrifice. And what Paul is saying is that this very, very earthly activity of giving money to people in need is actually an act of worship to God. It's a kind of sacrifice of sorts. You're laying it on the altar, and it's pleasing to God. These Jews were to be valued for what they've shared, that is, the gospel, with them. And they, in turn, must value the ones who'd shared the gospel with them. And so must we. Well, Paul ends by saying, when... I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Was Paul being presumptuous here? Did Paul ever get to Spain? Well, I quoted Jacques Lefebvre de Tap earlier. Clement of Rome, who is writing between 96 and 97 AD, I've been to his house. I've stood in the street outside the remains of his villa and I've been in the church named after him. Clement of Rome wrote about Paul's, quote, noble renown as a herald of the gospel. To the whole world he taught righteousness and reaching the limits of the West, he bore witness before rulers. So it's likely that Paul, from Jerusalem, you know, he's going to ask them to pray for him, by the way, in verse 30. I bet his prayers, prayers, those prayers were answered, but not the way Paul perhaps imagined. He went to Jerusalem, remember. The money was handed over. And Paul was arrested brought under the jurisdiction of Rome. And the Romans saved him a lot of money in expenses because they transported him. They transported him to Rome. I often thought about Paul. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but... um, 
We used to take our children, uh, after I persuaded Christine, it only took about 10 years to persuade her to do this, which was quite a short period. Um, We took our children to the south coast of France for vacation. We never, I'd never been to the south coast of France before. It was, uh, it was wonderful crossing the English Channel, getting to drive on the right side of the road after having been on the wrong side of the road uh, in the UK, getting back to my Canadian roots of driving on the right instead of the left, tunneling down those big highways down south, towards the sunshine at the bottom, putting on the Beach Boys, which the children still remember, me doing that. And uh, eventually we got down to the south. And one of our outings, we went to uh, Saint-Tropez. Saint-Tropez. It's just a little village. You may have never heard of Saint-Tropez. All these multi-billionaires come in with their yachts. They back the yachts in. And uh, then their little men in their black suits set the tables, put all the silver or golden wear out. The plebs, like us, looking on, get to watch this theater as it's unpacked. And then they're served these opulent meals so everybody can see them. And he's displaying their wealth. And as I was standing there, I got a vision. I told the group that we were with, we went with a couple of other couples, I said, you know, I, I, said, I looked at those yachts and I thought, the words Mediterranean ministries came into mind. I said, you know, I, you know, I, could, I could do this. I could do Mediterranean ministries. If, if I could get some people to buy me a yacht like that, then I could go from port to port to port and, you know, preach the gospel around the Mediterranean. Great idea. And I said, this, I've got biblical basis for doing this. Paul, he went on boats in the Mediterranean. In fact, he swam in the Mediterranean. I know he was shipwrecked, but he's swimming in the Mediterranean. And, and he even went to Spain and, and so on. Well, short, long story short, nobody ever caught that vision. Sorry to say. And I never got to do my Mediterranean Mission. Anyway, that's a lot of nonsense. Uh, obviously running out of anything to say towards the end of this talk. Uh, but, but anyway, we think that's what happened, that Paul went to, he was arrested in Jerusalem, given free passage to Rome, kept there under house arrest, not in his own place, but under house arrest with a soldier with him day and night for two years, probably released then and went on to Spain after he'd done what he was doing there, uh, and we hear about a ruler who was converted through him there, he comes back to Rome. But by the time he comes back to Rome, Nero's in power. And as you remember, Nero blamed the fire of Rome on the Christians and unleashed a terrible persecution that led to the death of Peter uh, in the Vatican, circus. Uh, that is the place where they had their horse races. He was crucified there. and Paul was beheaded. Well, that's probably the way in which God's providence worked out. Not the way Paul expected. Sometimes in our lives, God achieves his will for us, for you and me, in ways we don't expect. 
We must just leave it up to him. Well, Paul is utterly dependent on God. That's the last little bit here. And he asks believers to pray for him. He presses them to pray for him by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. By the Lord Jesus. That's the authority behind him asking for prayer. And the context is the mutual relations among Christians, which is the love of the Spirit, the love the Spirit has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. John Calvin helps us here. He says this, Paul shows how the godly ought to pray for their brethren, that they are to assume their person as though they were placed in the very same circumstances. Let me read to you what Paul says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Put yourself in my place. Put yourself in my shoes. Imagine yourself where I am and that you're there with me and wrestle with God for me. We should never be embarrassed to ask our brothers and sisters to pray for us. For that's God's means of sustaining us in our Christian life. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would, uh, in your mercy, uh, encourage us, as the Apostle Paul does, to pray for one another, to think of our Christian friends, brothers, sisters, as the events arise, as the needs come before us, to help them out practically as well as with the gospel. We pray that we, Lord, would be sensitive to these things and be praying for one another. We ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.